All right, well, we've been looking through chapters 13 through 23. We're coming to the end of that today, uh, the, the section on lots of woes and uh, judgments and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, and I know it gets tedious, and that's why I wanted to move through it. Hopefully you guys are getting a lot from it um, because it is the Word of God, and we need to be reminded of the judgment and the woes just as much as we do the encouragement. Um, but we've been really looking at the conquering of the kingdoms of the earth by the kingdom of heaven. And more importantly, the conquering of the kingdom of darkness that is behind all of the kingdoms of the world. And so we've been talking a lot about nations, the oracles or proclamations to the nations. This morning, he's going to shift from this idea of nations and countries and kingdoms down to a little bit uh, closer level and talk about the idea of cities. Um, Back in the olden days, way back in the day, right, uh, you guys have heard of things like Athens or Sparta probably if you've watched movies. Uh, There were things called city-state kingdoms. They were one giant city that was so large that it basically was a kingdom uh, in and of itself. It had its own power and its own wealth. Now, for us today, that's hard to imagine, but what you can think of is maybe Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, Uh, or maybe um, New York City is another great example. These are our self-contained cities. Now, I'm a city kid. How many of you are city kids? Raise your hand. How many of you are kind of country folk? Yeah, okay. About half and half. Good. Okay. I lived in North Portland. I went to school in the city. Um, Some of the gyms I played basketball in, you had to walk through metal detectors in order to go play. Um, And so I'm a city guy. I know what the city is like. But I have found this odd phenomenon in Salem, and I'm kind of being overtaken by it. Have you ever noticed that a lot of people in Salem have to kind of get themselves ready to go to the big city? You ever notice that? Uh, like my mother-in-law, she loves, uh, she loves Salem, but she'll drive to Portland and she like kind of has to get, kind of get prepared, you know? And I found that in a lot of people, even myself. I drive up there every week for school and I find that I have to prepare myself. Now, um, uh, it's not that bad for Portland, so I can't fully understand it, but I can understand it in going uh, to a city like New York, preparing myself, right? Uh, each year when I played basketball for Notre Dame, we had to go to New York multiple times. We played against St. John's University uh, and against, um, uh, or in the Big East Conference and stuff. And so every time we went to New York, I had to kind of psych myself up. I had to get ready. Um, I'd have to prepare myself for the bigness. How many of you have been to New York? Okay, a few of you, right? You have to get prepared for the bigness. Uh, you have to get prepared for a little bit of the, the smelliness. Am I right? Right? Okay, you're walking down the streets, it's a little bit smelly. Uh, you got to get prepared for the loudness, uh, sometimes the rudeness, okay? And scariest of all, the cab rides, Okay. Uh, The only places I've ever felt like I was going to die in a cab are in Casablanca, Morocco, and New York City, okay? Um, And so I always had to get myself kind of prepared. Well, uh, this is actually kind of like what we're going to be talking about today. Isaiah is going to be talking in in foretelling and prophecy, and he's going to be talking about uh, preparation for things to come. And he's going to be speaking to three distinct cities and the preparation that needs to come for those cities. Two of them are going to end in destruction, and they need to prepare by repenting. And the last one is preparation for the city of God. Um, And so when we look at the Bible, there's this idea of the city of God that uh, happens again and again. Um, if you look at Hebrews, for example, uh, this is Hebrews 11.13. Um, we've read this before. Hebrews 11.13, speaking of all the uh, men and women of faith in the past, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, they were far off in the future. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I love that last phrase. What that's talking about is the fact that those who are the chosen people of God, the followers of Christ, uh, we are people that are waiting for a city. Okay? God's prepared for us a city, and my, my statement to you today is that we also must prepare for that city. Should we prepare for it? Yes. How we prepare for it, that's what we're going to start talking about today, and we're going to talk about uh, into next week. So Isaiah, again, will get us prepared for, or, uh, for the future of three cities. The first is going to be the city of Tyre, um, T-Y-R-E, uh, and the second is going to be called the city of waste, or the wasteful city, the city of chaos. And then he's going to finish with the city that God has prepared for us, and we know it as Mount Zion or the New Jerusalem. Um, some people might just call it heaven, plain old heaven, um, but that is the city that we're awaiting and that we're moving towards, Okay. So let's begin this morning with Isaiah 23, and we will see this first point here. We will see that even man's most glorious cities will come to nothing. Even our greatest creations of cities will come to nothing. Let's take a look at Isaiah 23. The oracle or proclamation concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them, Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Now, if you're like me, you've got to read over this a few times before you kind of figure out what's going on here. We've got to talk a little bit about who he's talking about, the city of Tyre um, and Sidon. Okay? They were sister cities, uh, sister city-states, and they were the wealthiest centers of commerce in the old world. Okay? Now, this is very, very important to get because then you're going to start to understand where he's going with this. All the other nations look to them as the center of wealth. And yet, God says here he's going to raise their self-reliant city to the ground. They can be the most wealthy people in the world, and it's not going to save them from his judgment. Now, let's take a look at uh, Tyre a little bit and figure out who they are. Uh, This is a little bit hard to see, but you can see the outlines. Okay, you've got Europe up there in the top left and uh, what's called Iberia, or now now we know it as Spain. Down at the bottom, you've got Africa, and it goes all the way over to where it says Asia. That's present-day Turkey. And just below that is Sidon and Tyre. They're in what is current-day Lebanon, okay? Now, this map, all those red lines, it shows where they took their ships and did trade, okay? So in that day, this was the known world, the Mediterranean. They, they took uh, their trade everywhere, all right? Uh, they were known, that area of, of the world was known by the Greeks as Phoenicia, and it's a word that means uh, dyed purple, okay? And basically what they were known for was they took a certain mollusk, a certain shellfish, and they ground it up, and from it they got purple dye, and so they dyed material purple. Now, anybody want to tell me who used purple material back in the day? Royalty. Royalty. Whoa, yeah. This is going to be a good day. You guys all responded. This is awesome. I talk about fashion. You guys are like, I'm on this, right? Okay? <laughs> So royalty, that's awesome. Good job. And so royalty, they have money. They're going to buy it. And so they had it shipped all over the place, okay? So they were known for this export. And their fleet of ships had reached the ends of the world. 
Other countries relied on their trade in order for their trade to be good. Does this sound like anybody in the present day? If we were to have a present day Tyre and Sidon, who would it be? The United States, okay? And so the wealthiest of the nations, the wealthiest of the two actually was Tyre. And uh, they just stimulated their economy as much as they could. And they tried to share that with everybody else to a certain extent. But because they were the wealthiest, they were seen as kind of the most powerful. And so this does have a lot of principal understanding for us uh, as the United States. Now, because of their wealth, they couldn't be humbled. They thought they could never be brought down. Um, and in addition to this, Tyre was an interesting city-state, okay? It was this tiny little city on the coast, but then out a little bit from the coast, it actually had an island, okay? You can see over there the coast on the right, and then there's a land bridge that uh, I will talk about in a little bit, but that's the island of Tyre. And all around it, it had walls and, and towers, and it was a very, very wealthy place uh, that the ships would come into port up there uh, in the top right. And an artist's rendition, I found this online, it, it looked kind of like this, okay? So there's the mainland over there. Here's the city-state of Tyre. It looks pretty strong, right? Everybody thought it couldn't be taken down. Uh, it couldn't be humbled because of its wealth and because of its location being protected by the water surrounding it. And so when the nations of the world hear that it's been sacked, not only are they shocked and surprised, but they mourn deeply. They think, oh my gosh, their economy went down. What are we going to do? Okay. Uh, you guys ever seen when our talk, the stock market takes a tumble? If any of you pay attention to this, what happens to every other stock market in the world? They all take a tumble. Okay. And so they'd gained wealth quickly because uh, they kind of came from nowhere. They were this punk, new punk on the block, so to speak. And everybody else gained, um, uh, gained wealth as well. And that's what it says in this weird statement there. I have neither labored nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. In essence, they're talking about how they'd suddenly built this huge trade route uh, and they'd, be, they'd become uh, very, very uh, strong, but they hadn't really necessarily worked for it. In other words, their wealth was almost uh, kind of this ephemeral thing. Kind of like our stock market, right? Everybody goes, man, look at how wealthy we are. We're past, what is it? I don't even know the numbers. 20,000, 2,000, whatever it is. 2,000. 21,000. We passed 21,000. Look at all the wealth we have. That's just people making bets. It's really no different than a giant casino, right? It, it is. I mean, when you boil it down, some of my best financial brothers, okay, I, I had a, uh, one of my roommates in college is now one of the vice presidents of Credit Suisse, right? Uh, he's like, you know, Mr., Mr. High and Mighty Guy, right? He's got this big worldly job, and he calls me up. He's like, so what's going on? I'm like, oh yeah, I started a church. We got like five people today, right? It was really interesting, kind of the difference. Wonderful guy, but he told me even one time, he said, yeah, the stock market is basically one big gamble. That's all it really is. And so there's this idea that the wealth wasn't even worked for. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon, um, man, they are the center of the world, so to speak. Well, let's keep going here. Verse 6, cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. 
So the people of Tyre and Sidon, uh, when they got sacked, as we'll look at in a, in a minute, they traveled all over the place trying to go and get away from the people that were attacking them. And so they started, uh, for example, the city of Carthage there that's kind of in the middle of the screen. They were the ones that poured into it. They had been around a long time, um, but they needed to flee. And so they're not going to find rest even in the far-off countries because what God is doing is humbling them, okay? So God steps in to humble their arrogance, and he would do such a complete job that the other city-states would no longer even have to worry about Tyre and Sidon and their authority, okay? Let's look at verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans, okay? We know them as Babylon, uh, Babylonia. This is the people that that were not. Assyria destined it for wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp. Go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody. Sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre. And she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Okay? Now, what's interesting about this is this is very specific. It says 70 years like the life of a king. The reason that this is important is because, uh, well, the history of Tyre, I could probably talk about it for an hour because there's so much. Don't worry, I won't. Okay? Uh, but uh, the, what we need to understand for today is this. In about 701 BC, uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came over and tried to defeat the city. And he didn't totally defeat it. He brought it low a little bit, but uh, they kept fighting for about 70 years. And it wasn't until Assyria was brought down exactly 70 years later, uh, in 630 BC, when the Babylonians started to come in and they started to move aside Assyria and they left Tyre alone and Tyre started to regain its wealth. And so why is this here? Well, this is here as many of the other prophecies that are stuck into Isaiah to give us a close prophecy that becomes true so that Isaiah gains credibility for the the far-off prophecy where he speaks about the fullness of the kingdom of God, okay? And so you can read lots of different um, prophecies about Tyre. There's one in Ezekiel 26. Uh, And Ezekiel 26 is very interesting because it actually foretells how Tyre will fall. Uh, It talks about them taking rocks and wood and throwing it into the sea to create a land bridge to come over and destroy the city. Um, And so we'll talk about that one day when we go through Ezekiel. I don't want to spend time on that today. But these prophecies are, are really, really important. And guys, uh, really quick, I know that a lot of you are not history geeks like me, and I don't ever want you to be. It's a, it's a tough life being a history geek, I tell you. Um, but the reality is, is that there are two reasons why we talk about history. The first one is this, is that the Bible is really clear. Part of our job as witnesses is to tell what God has done. It's hard to do that if you don't know history. Second of all is because it gives us faith, it gives us hope. You know, why do we care about this? Well, because the completed foretelling of Scripture gives us assurance that the foretelling of God's kingdom coming is assured. I don't know about you guys, but that brings me great, great hope. And verse 18 actually says this as well. Uh, It's hard in the English because it just continues the thought, but in the Hebrew, uh, there's this uh, uh, phrase at the beginning, uh, which is vahaya, which means, and it will happen, or and it will be. It's almost a break in thought in verse 18. And it says, and it will be, uh, that her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. Okay? So that's not talking about the same thought of when Tyre's acting like a prostitute. Okay? It's talking about a new thing that's going to happen in the future. One day, Tyre, the remnant of Tyre, the remnant of the people of that part of the world, will come to Christ and will follow him. 
So it says, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. So their selfishness will turn into generosity when they follow the Lord in his kingdom, okay? So even man's most glorious cities will come to nothing. Uh, Just for fun, this is a picture of Tyre from uh, Google Images, okay? Um, That is the island out there on the far left, and the reason that the land is so wide is that original causeway that was built by uh, eventually Alexander the Great who conquered them, uh, sediment added to it, and it's turned into now a peninsula. Um, But that's what it looks like, so uh, history proven true, which is really, really cool, okay? Now, this prophecy uh, in verse 18 leads us to the next thing I want to talk about, which is this. The chaotic city of mankind will be judged. The chaotic city of mankind will be judged. Now you say city. Hans, are you talking about a specific city? No, and that's one of the mistakes I think that we make is when we look at the Bible and it's using symbolism is a lot of times we want so badly to know which city it's talking about. Uh, But as we've already talked about, when the Bible talks about uh, Babylon and uh, sometimes some other things like Egypt, it's using it symbolically. And I believe very firmly that right here, because it tells us so, it's speaking about the city of chaos or the city of waste. And it pictures basically mankind's system. Our system in which we think we can build ourselves up, be our own authority. We have the power because of money or of uh, military. Um, And that's what it's talking about, is the chaotic city of mankind. Okay? And so we move from Tyre to this idea of a city representing mankind as a whole. And we'll see Isaiah reach back to the idea of the original city of rebellion, Babylon, or Babel, okay, as we've talked about many times over the last few weeks. So let's jump into chapter 24, and let's keep going here. Verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of 24. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, and the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Judgment will come upon the world. It will come on mankind as whole. Scripture is clear that there will ultimately come a time of divine judgment upon the earth when things are worse than they have ever been. How's that for an encouragement this morning? It's not at all. 
In fact, we look at it and we go, oh man, and this is honestly, this, these, this scripture and many like it are the ones that people struggle with when they try and say, this has all happened in the past. Uh, this is all something that's been occurring before. It hasn't. You know, the earth is going to be scorched. It's going to be plundered. Everyone, regardless of caste or class, will be humbled. This will one day happen. Now, why does God perform this eventual judgment on the earth? Well, he gives three reasons, and we got to jot these down because these are super important. Reasons for God's eventual judgment. For his judgment that plays out, but his eventual fullness of judgment here, there are three reasons. The first one is this. It says, transgressed the laws. Now, you can write it down as disobeyed divine instruction. Here's why. Transgress the laws means to basically cross over or, or, or move aside the instruction given by God. Now, many of us think of it this way. We think of it as um, maybe an authority um, giving us their instruction just because they are the authority and they just want to be the authoritarian person, okay? But the reality is, is that would be true if God were not the one that created us and made us. But because he's the creator, his instruction that he gives isn't just do as I say. His instruction is this is what you're created for and this is what's good and this is what will be good for you. And instead of following that and saying, wow, that would be good for us, we disobey his divine instruction of what is best for us. And secondly, like it, what we do then is we don't just leave it alone and say, I'm not going to do what he says. We then replace it with our own law and remove his. And so we come up with our own morality. Now, th- I could talk about this in lots of different ways. I'll, u- I'll give an example. Uh, it was pretty funny on Young Adults Night, uh, Friday night, because um, uh, we were talking and somebody uh, said, uh, you know, thou shalt not lie. And I went, well, actually, is that what the commandment says? And somebody piped up and said, no, it actually says thou shalt not bear false witness. Do you know that the Bible doesn't ever say that lying is always a sin? Now, the Bible does say that lying is an issue when it harms someone. But do you guys remember the spies that were actually saved by a lie? They were taken in, and the, the people came, the soldiers came to get the spies as they were spying out Egypt, and the, the soldiers were lied to. And God doesn't judge the person who lied. Now, again, as I told the young adults group, do not walk out of here saying, Hans told me it's okay to lie. I'm going to go lie all the time, right? Okay? But it's interesting how we take God's very purposeful instruction and we tweak it sometimes to our own devices, sometimes to create a moralism that isn't actually there. Okay? Uh, there are all sorts of things in the Bible that we have twisted and tweaked and said we're going to make our own law around it. So not only has mankind disobeyed God, uh, we have altered what he said to our own devices and desires. And this can happen even within the church, very much so. Okay? And then the third thing is this. Uh, broke the everlasting covenant. Okay? Broken the everlasting covenant. This is the relationship between God and his creation. And this isn't talking about one specific covenant, the Davidic covenant or the Noahic covenant or any of those. It's talking about the covenant that a God has with his creation. Okay? So the fact that there is only one God, our God, and he's created us means that there is a covenant in place. What is that covenant? Well, that covenant is this. He's going to create us, give us life, love us, watch over us. He loves us and provides for us. And what is the response? We worship and obey. That is the innate covenant. Uh, we as parents, that's kind of what we do when we have kids, right? I, I've, I, if a parent jumps into the covenant relationship of having a child and goes, yeah, I'm not going to provide for you, I'm not going to care for you, what usually happens? People who know better for the child come in and remove them from that situation. 
And they say, no, somebody needs to care for this child, right? And what is that child required then to do? Well, as part of it, you live under my house, you live in my rules, right? Now, that sounds very authoritarian in our minds, but the reality is, is I kind of know what's better for my kids, if they want to go run across the street and I say, you know what, it would be much better for you if you look both ways. I don't want to, poof, right? Speed bump. Right? That's what would happen. No, you need to pay attention to the instruction because it's better for you. It's good for you. So this idea of everlasting covenant is what God has with mankind. Hosea 6, 7 says it like this, but like Adam they transgress the covenant. What covenant was in place with Adam? There's none spoken of specifically. It's an inherent covenant that mankind has with their God. There they dealt faithlessly with me, God says. Okay? So these are the three things uh, that we see that are the reasons for God's judgment. Now these are really important for us, not because it, it only just tells us what sin is, but because next week as we go through what it is to be the people of God, what it is to live within the city of God, and what it symbolizes, we'll see that really the kingdom of God is these reversed, obeying divine instruction, following God's law, and living in everlasting covenant. Now, because we've already transgressed, there is something that is missing from this list that is absolutely necessary before we ever do any of those things, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can never enter in and suddenly obey God's divine commands. We can't follow his law and we can't enter into covenant with him because we've broken it. And so there's a requirement that God had to take care of that sin and the fact that we broke these. And so he atones for us by sending his son to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins and to resurrect proving that he had finished the work and that he had paid for those sins. And now we as the people of God enter in and we obey God's law and his divine instruction and we live in everlasting covenant. And we'll talk about what that looks like within our relationships in the church. So you see, Isaiah uses this idea of a wasted city as a reference back to that original city. Um, The word wasted here, okay, is the Hebrew word tohu. It means chaotic or empty, okay, Uh, or without form. It's very similar to uh, Genesis 1-2, okay? The chaotic city of mankind. Here's what it says in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form. That's the word tohu in Hebrew. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you guys know the story. What happens right after that verse? What begins? Creation. In the midst of formlessness and emptiness, the author is hearkening back to this understanding and saying, there's something coming. There's something good coming. There's a new creation that's about to happen. Everything is broken down in this wasted city in verse 10. It's broken down. Every house is shut up that none can enter. But before the work of creation occurs, there must be the fullness of chaos and confusion. And this is what occurred with Babel. This is what occurs with the world. Is our world getting less chaotic or more? And that's not just pessimism, guys. That is the truth. It doesn't matter if you go listen to the Democratic news sites or the Republican news sites or the Independent news sites or the whatever news sites. The earth is getting more chaotic than it has for every generation, okay? And so that is going to happen, but we don't stop there or else we'd be done for. So Isaiah pictures this idea of this kingdom, this city being broken down and the provision of Tyre specifically and the protection of Tyre and Sidon being gone in the earlier chapter. And here, nothing but desolation and a remnant of people few and far between are existing. 
Now Isaiah, if you read this, he leaves us with a thunderous silence that echoes across the entire earth. Judgment has come. People are as few and far between as gleaning when the grape harvest is done. But just as silence is most deafening, Isaiah breaks in with a message of hope that there are those that remain. And that remnant, the faithful ones to the Lord, we start to hear them afar off in our mind's eye. You can imagine emptiness and just destruction of buildings and of the earth. And off in the distance, you start to hear singing, but it's, it's singing that's not a funeral dirge, but people lifting up their voices in triumphant songs of joy. Wickedness has been done away with, and mankind can again praise God and lift their heads to give glory fully to the righteous one. Take a look at verse 14. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. This is the remnant that's left. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout for the, uh, from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. But I say, Isaiah pauses. Isaiah is about to pause in his vision and enter back into the story, not as a prophet, but as a person. And he's going to cry out in anguish at the brokenness he sees. He says, I waste away. I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. Guys, part of what it is to exist as the city of God on earth, to exist as the kingdom of heaven on earth, is to live in the same tension that Isaiah did. He's feeling both joyous praise for the fact that God will come and will rescue us and redeem things. But he notices that that's only among the wreckage. And he has a wasting away of sadness at the hurt that is in the world. This is the tension that Christ calls us to live in. See, in in this, when we live in that tension, we reflect Jesus in an amazing way to the world, don't we? We reflect the fact that Jesus has the fullness of joy because he is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. In your right hand is the fullness of joy. But we also reflect the fact that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief while on this earth. And so Jesus himself lived in that tension as he prepared to die for the sins of the world, to bring the joy of the resurrection. And this is what we're called to do as the city of God as well to live in this tension, to show the tension to the world. If we only are ever positive, guys, then we basically state to the world there is no need for the death of our Savior. And if we're only ever negative and glum and sad about the sin around us, then we don't rejoice in the resurrection. And so we live in that tension. And this is what Isaiah is doing. And he continues from here and says, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. In other words, no win scenario. For the windows of heaven are opened. This is hearkening back to the idea of the flood, that there is nowhere to run, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. You can just picture it in your mind's eye. This is not good. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. 
They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. The picture of the destruction of the kingdom of darkness is heavy, and it's intended to be to help us understand that God will eventually put down his foot and say, enough is enough, and he will punish the kingdom of darkness, the heavenly beings that have betrayed him. And he will punish those who are rulers on this earth who have likewise betrayed him. He is the authority above all, and God will judge the earthly city of mankind. But it's from here that we begin to see what we've been waiting for. At this very moment, the city of God starts to overcome the city of chaos. And he begins this with the idea of rather than worshiping the idols in our life, rather than doing what the rest of the world does, the worshiping of the sun and the moon, as we'll talk about in a second, we are ones that worship God enthroned, the true authority who's going to bring righteousness and restoration to the world. And Isaiah finishes the, the, uh, with the fact, the last part of what we're going to read, we're going to read through a huge section of Scripture here, the last part of what we're going to read is this statement. He's going to state to us that we, as Christians, write this down, we await the city of God. We await the completion of the city of God. We as Christians await the completion of the city of God. He starts out here in verse 23. He says, The moon, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Now, guys, we know what they are. They're big hunks of rock with fire up in the sky, right? Now, I know you scientists are like, no, Hans, that's not what they are. Okay, but basically, they kind of are, okay? Um, they're not people to be ashamed, but what he's saying is the people that worship them as gods, those gods behind that idea are going to be ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns. Remember that phrase, Lord of hosts, is a statement of war. He reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. These are specific statements of the city that is to come. And his glory will be before his elders. Interesting that he says this. We have no way of knowing if this section is, inspired, uh, is what inspired John uh, when he wrote Revelation. But this seems awfully familiar. Let's turn to Revelation 4. Keep your finger here in Isaiah and go to Revelation 4. And look at what uh, the picture is there in heaven. Okay? We just had this, all these, this language around the flood, the, the gates of heaven opened and flood, um, the world being broken and destroyed, and then God sitting on his throne in front of his elders. Okay? John says in Revelation 4, New Testament, this is in 95 AD, long after Isaiah had died, okay? Revelation 4, here's what he says. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, John said, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, Okay, basically, whenever you read that kind of stuff, here's what John's saying. It was really cool, and I don't know how to tell you, so I'm going to just throw out some jewels. Okay? It's kind of like when I go, like, and this does not happen often. I think it's happened like twice. But if I've ever gone jewelry shopping with Kelly, right? Kelly's like, oh, I like that cut of the diamond. I'm like, see-through rock. That's what I think, right? John couldn't describe the beauty of God, so he says, oh, it's like carnelian and jasper. And around the throne was a rainbow. What is the rainbow a sign of, guys? It's a sign of God's covenant faithfulness to mankind that he will never fully destroy us, okay? It had the appearance of an emerald. Again, pretty, okay? Love you, John. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This is the Exodus idea, same idea of the peals of thunder and rumblings that were around the mountain when they got the law. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay, that's also hearkening back to Isaiah. We covered that near Christmas, that he has various spirits that he's going to rule with. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Okay, and that's picturing, that is a symbol for the Gentile church. Okay, the world, the sea, the chaos. The chaos will finally be brought to a place where it will no longer be chaotic. It will be like crystal. Okay, so this idea of this uh, wonderful situation up in heaven where God is sitting before his 24 elders, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and he's got all of the nations of the world gather around him, and the chaos has been stilled because of his authority on the throne. This is the same exact thing that Isaiah is speaking of. This will happen. This is promised. This is assured. And so when we as New Testament believers talk about the second coming of Christ and what heaven will be like, we're speaking the same language as Isaiah. It is not clouds up in the sky with a harp, right? It is not getting to do whatever you wanted to do on earth but couldn't. It is not the ultimate retirement destination. It is none of those things. It is what Isaiah and John picture. That the worldly kingdoms and the chaos and the destruction and the hurt and harm that comes from it will be destroyed. And there will be an installation of God's own kingdom in place. Turn a little bit farther to the right to Revelation 18. Revelation 18, starting in verse 17. You could read all of 18, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to start in verse 17. And this should get your mind right back to what we talked about with Tyre and with the wasteful city. It's the same language. Isaiah and Revelation. For in a single hour, all this wealth... Wealth of what? Of the great city. In this case, it's using Babylon as a symbol. All of the wealth has been laid waste. It's eighteen seventeen, And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, guys, in the history of the church, this has been Rome, uh, this has been Tyre, uh, this has been uh, Constantinople, uh, this has been New York City, uh, this has been whatever city is the largest city at the time and the most powerful. Uh, We miss out by trying to get so specific with what that city is that we miss the point. The wealth, the arrogance of the nations will be brought low before God. It says, verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpets, will be heard in you no more. And craftsmen of any craft, uh, they were crafty craftsmen there, okay? Uh, They will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and the saints and of all who had been slain on earth. There must be the destruction of that kingdom before the fullness of God's kingdom jumps in. Look at verse 1 of 19. After this, the destruction of the worldly kingdoms, 
I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, okay, guys, who's this? It's us. It's the church. It's those that are the true followers of Christ from all the world. Marcel will be there and all of his church. Laveau will be there and all of his church. Our brothers and sisters from Vietnam and from Libya and from Saudi Arabia and from France and from Great Britain, they will all be there singing hallelujah, praise be to Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! In other words, let it be. Hallelujah! Praise to Yahweh. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. I have a question for you, and I'm very serious in this question. Does this type of scripture from Isaiah and Revelation influence your life? Or is this a section where you go, yeah, that'll happen in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. All right. Moving on. Or does it not at all? See, this is in here, guys, not because it's just some symbolic, mythical story. It's not just something to get our emotions high and then let us go about our day. This is everything to us. This is everything to the Christian. One day we will stand before the throne of our loving, benevolent Savior, our King, and we will be able to look into His eyes and say, praise be to you. That should affect everything in our lives. Looking to that day and making sure that we are preparing today for that day. That's the life that we should be living. And so we've been crying out for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven since the Lord commanded us to do so. And this is the crowning, the coronation that we await Now go back to Isaiah 25 with me, and let's continue here. He moves on in talking about the destruction of the earthly kingdom in 25.1. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you, and I will praise your name. Man, connect this with Revelation. It is amazing. This is what we're saying to God in the throne room of heaven, and what we need to be saying to him every moment of every day right now. For you, God, you, O Lord, have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city, speaking of the worldly kingdoms, the sinfulness of man, a heap. The fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Now, guys, don't take the English meaning of foreigner here, okay? Uh, God is for the refugee, for the foreigner. What he's talking about here is those outside the kingdom of God, okay? Verse 3, therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. And so here he's basically saying the same thing. The idea that the city of man will be brought low. And now he begins to speak of a poem of victory and exaltation, speaking of the city of God. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. Mmm, marrow. You guys looking forward to that? In that day, it meant something very strong, okay? Of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that veil? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. That's pretty bad. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, to understand this, there are two scriptures I want to turn us to to give us a greater understanding of this passage. He starts out in verse 6 and says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Now, this should uh, spark something in your brain from Isaiah 2. Here's what it said in Isaiah 2, verse 2. It said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Again, not necessarily topography or geography. He's talking about authority. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we look at this, and we see that the same thing is being talked about. The city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. Now, is it going to be literally Zion? Is it going to be literally Jerusalem? Well, it very well could be. But this is also speaking a little bit symbolically. Let's turn to Revelation. And uh, again, to Revelation 19. And I'll help you guys understand some of the symbolism as best as I can, even though I don't have all the answers. But Revelation, go to verse 6. Okay, in Isaiah, he was talking about on this mountain, there will be a great feast, there will be great food, and he will welcome all nations. He's talking about something specific, and John, the revelator, gives us a little bit more information as to what that is in Revelation 19.6. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Who's that? Us. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Everybody practice with me. Say it together. Ready? Hallelujah. Ready? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he, the angel, said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The marriage feast of the Lamb is the feast that Isaiah was referencing without having all the information. God gave him this vision of people's flooding into Zion, having a feast. In those days, guys, you really only had that size of a feast for two reasons. A marriage of royalty or destruction of your enemy and the reign of your kingdom. You guys can go read the book of Esther. They had a huge, huge feast where thousands of people were invited for many, many days. Why? Because Xerxes had conquered. Because he had conquered the world and he was celebrating. And so we see these two mixed metaphors together, this idea of a a wedding and the idea of a feast celebrating victory as a kingdom because the city of God reigns. John is definitely mixing his metaphors here. But let's look a little bit further to Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And we're going to get even more mixed metaphor from our good friend John. 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What? I like to surf, man. That stinks. Be careful. He's not necessarily talking exactly literally here. And I saw the holy city, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her... Wait a minute. Okay, John, you're killing me here. We got victory of a kingdom, a city-state. We got a new city coming down, but it's a bride. I'm so confused here. All right, just keep going here. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Guys, in Old Testament idea, what was the dwelling place of God? What was that building called? It was called the temple. Tabernacle or temple, okay? He will dwell with them and they will be his people. So now we've even got the metaphor of temple thrown in here. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be no mourning uh, nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. See the same language that Isaiah is using? Yeah, Hans, we got it. He uses the same language. But see, what we need to do here is we need to join these together. Look again at verse 9, okay? Or look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, you got all the metaphors here? We got a city we got a temple, we got a kingdom, we got a bride. What is John doing here? Mixing all these metaphors, guys. He is, he is doing everything he can to explain it to us. Any of you have kids under, under six? Raise your hand, okay? You know when they build a really cool Lego something, okay? What do they do? They come to you and they're like, they can't give you the definition of what it is, but they go, it's like this and like that, and, and then you twist this thing, and, 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 and by the end you're like, I didn't actually gain any information out of what you said but I know you're really excited about it. And then you go and you look at it and you go, that is really cool. That's what's going on here. 
John is trying the best he can in human language to go, guys, I can't even describe to you the relationship. It's like you're with God, so it's like a temple, and he's there in the midst of his people, and you're protected, so it's like a fortress, and there is no enemy of death anymore, so you're like this kingdom that reigns, and you're intimate with God in a way that only a husband and wife can know the closeness. And it's this amazing, amazing statement. And so what we are awaiting, guys, is not a literal city, a location, or a proximity. Where is heaven? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. It's not up there. Eh, Kind of. It's not over there. Kind of. We don't know. What we do know is that it is a relationship. It is a culmination of relationship with God and with his people. I believe it is these people, it is us, the local churches of the world, combined together. Go back to Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 25. It is us who will proclaim to one another. Think about it here, guys. This is in quotes. Verse 9 of chapter 25, Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said on that day. By who? By all of us. Behold. Are we saying that to God? No, we're saying it to one another. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Is this how we speak to one another? Is this how we encourage one another? Is this how we live life together? Guys, I never make you do this because I hated doing this when I was sitting in the congregation and the pastor said, turn to the person to your right and say, rejoice, right? I hated that, but I'm going to make you do it. Turn to someone next to you and repeat after me. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Okay, now raise your hand if that was awkward. Okay, I, I, I promise you I will not make you do that that often. But here's the thing. Why was that awkward? Because we don't do it. We're not used to it. We're used to, hi, how's it going? Did you watch the game last night? Good. How are your kids? How's the family? Good. Can I bring you some food? That's all great stuff. Good. Then we sit down and we learn about Jesus and we go, awesome, okay, time for lunch. I'm going to go about my business. And we forget this fact that we are the bride, we are the temple, we are the city waiting for our Savior. And that every moment of every day of our lives is preparation for that day. You might say, well, yeah, Hans, that's, that's talking about the church in general, the kind of ambiguous church of the world. Guys, listen to what Paul said to a specific local church in Corinth that was most likely smaller than ours by about half. Here's what he said to the church at Corinth. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why? I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Guys, if we get this idea that we're part of this church and it's kind of this just conglomeration of people across the world and so it doesn't really matter and everything will be wiped away when we get to heaven and, you know, that person I have conflict with or that person who I disagree with or that person who, you know, just bothers me, right? It'll all just suddenly ma- magically appear and be okay in heaven. That's not how it works. Yes, he will wipe away every tear, but he's not going to do the men in black, you know, take away the, right? oh, I forgot that conflict. I forgot that anger. I forgot that division. That's why he asks us to deal with it here. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. What's his will? That on earth, we act like we're going to be in heaven. 
Are we that church? Is Mission Fellowship that church? Guys, we are that city. We are these people. And our witness to the world is not in how much we know or how many ministries we have. It is primarily and foremost. And this is the cornerstone. All other things. Uh, uh, Knowledge is good, yes. Ministries are good, yes. But it comes off of the cornerstone of this. The fact that God loves us in covenant love and so therefore we have covenant love for one another. That is our primary witness of the gospel of God's grace to the world around us. It is in being that colony of heaven that points forward to the new Jerusalem in that day when we will say together, this is our Lord, we have waited for him, let us be glad and rejoice. Are we preparing to be that city of God? See, that's what sanctification of this life is. That's what being in the church means. Not just attending a Sunday, not just going to a home group once in a while, but preparing for that day. The question I have for you is, are we preparing for the city of God? Paul, when he writes to Ephesus, this is the last scripture I'll show you. Paul, when he writes to Ephesus, he writes this. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are all fellow citizens. Realize he's writing to one local church. And this message was then sent to other local churches. Because the practice isn't with the ambiguous church, hoping that maybe you're kind of being Christian. The practice is in the local church, acting in life with one another, living life together, making room for that life together, removing things that, that, that take that away. He says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Cyprian said in the early days of the church, no one can have God as father if he does not have the church as mother. When you think of a building made of bricks, which each one of us is, and bricks are stacked next to each other and have bricks over them in authority and have bricks under them in submission and have bricks next to them supporting them, that's called a wall. That's the only way it works. Connection and relationship. Somebody goes, you know, I I don't like the church anymore. I don't want to be part of the church anymore. And they take themselves out of that and they drop it on the ground. What is it now? It's called a rock and it's worthless. You can't have God as father without the church as mother, guys. And I'm not just talking about mission. I'm talking about the fact that we, as the kingdom of God across the world, we have to get this, that what we are doing in this life is not just waiting for the day to come when we don't have to work hard anymore, don't have to go through the pain of this life. What we are waiting for is this, the city of God. And we can wait, in a sense, inaugurated, starting that process now, building the wall, so to speak, of the temple now in our love for one another and awaiting for the day where the fullness of God comes in Jesus Christ and stands in our midst. And we know that that city is fully formed at that point. 